What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Many of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, which is my effort to find the most interesting people in the world and sit with them for hours while I ask questions in an effort to learn. We have no advertisers on this podcast, so it would mean the world to me if you would subscribe to the show on your favorite audio platform, watch episodes on YouTube, and tell your friends and family about the podcast. My goal is to help millions learn from the world's most interesting people. So let's get into today's episode. Daniel Westgarth is the COO of Deal. In this conversation, we talk about building an international behemoth. We talk about all the unscalable things that they had to do in order to get operational in so many different countries. We talk about his entrepreneurial start, what he learned growing up on a farm, flipping parking spots in Newcastle, and many other things that Daniel has gone through, the lessons he's learned, and the people he's met along the way. I really enjoy this conversation with Daniel, and I hope you guys enjoy it as well. Here is my conversation with Daniel Westgarth. Anthony Pompliano runs Pomp Investments. All views of him and the guests on his podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pomp Investments. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys, bang, bang, I've got Daniel here. Daniel, you are the ultimate entrepreneur in the sense of you've had to do a ton of crazy things in order to help build deal into this behemoth, doing hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue. And one of the things that uh, I know you guys have had to do is go to many, many different countries to help set up all sorts of legal entities. Uh, I think at one point you guys were even carrying a physical printer with you. Talk a little bit about some of the like unscalable things that you've had to do to build what everyone looks at from the outside is this like really sexy, fast growing company. But really, it's just a collection of small, unscalable things that you guys have had to figure out as you've gone. Yeah. So I think first thing to realize is that Deal really is built like any other international corporation. We have headquarters, parent company, and we have subsidiaries across many different countries around the globe. And a lot of those countries, it's pretty easy to go there and set up. For example, you can go to the UK, you can go to the UK government's website, and you can set up a company in a pretty easy way. You go to Argentina, you go to Brazil, you go to Malaysia, that process is very different. Most of the time, you have to physically be there. You have to physically be there, go to the Secretary of State. Yeah, you could have an attorney do it, but sometimes they actually require the director to be in that country. And then you need to print out all this documentation. So we literally had a team of people that would go country to country, prepare these applications, and then we would file them. And in some cases, the directors, which are me, the CEO, the CFO, would have to actually physically be there. So that meant we would fly around country to country with a little HP printer in our luggage, arrive at the hotel room, plug it in, print off the documentation, meet with a notary, and then go to the Secretary of State to file documents to incorporate the company or obtain a relevant labor license. So what's always interesting to me is whenever somebody has this kind of entrepreneurial DNA and you see it later in life, especially as they become more and more successful with various things that they build, you can almost trace it back, right? And for you, you grew up on a farm, I believe, and that's really kind of where you learned entrepreneurship. And then throughout your early childhood, uh, you did a whole bunch of entrepreneurial things, which we'll get into, but talk a little bit about growing up uh, and kind of how you learn some of these skills and, and really focused on just like, how do you solve problems and build, you know, what ends up being businesses in, in an entrepreneurial way? Yeah, sure. I mean, yeah, great, great point. I did grow up on a farm. I'm a 
small town boy and <laughs> my dad was the farmer. I'd wake up from an early age, maybe 10 years old, and I would, I would work with him every day. And I think the farm taught me a couple of things, uh, maybe three things, which are really important. The first thing is hard work prevails. And my dad, as soon as his eyes open, he's up, he's out of bed, he's working and he's doing something. And um, I learned that and applied that in business. Second thing is every journey is made up of many different steps. And those steps can be as small as you want. I think about planting seeds, growing a crop, harvesting that crop, sending it off to a mill to finally manufacture bread, bread that you eat at home. There's so many steps in that process. Um, and that's the same in business and entrepreneurialism. Um, every kind of idea needs to be broken down into so many different steps and you follow those steps and eventually you get to where you're going. And I think the final thing is diversification or ability to pivot. All of the farmers that I met in England, and these are small town, small town farmers. These are not big um, corporate farms. These are very, very small little places in England. All of them diversify. Maybe they have some crops in the ground. Maybe they have some livestock. Maybe they have some people that keep horses on the land. Maybe they have other things going on. And my, my father would constantly diversify his business to survive. Let's talk about once you leave the farm and you start doing all sorts of entrepreneurial things. Uh, one of them is this, like, I'll call it we work of parking lots, uh, which is just an absolutely insane story. But like, what were you guys doing with parking lots in your teenage years? Well, yeah, I wanted to find a place to park my car in Newcastle, which is where I went to school. It's my local city. And it was really tough to find a parking spot in the urban area. The same as it is in New York or any other um, major urban city. So anyway, found a parking spot. It was great. I paid the owner um, £120 a month or whatever it was. And then I quickly realized, well, there's a ton of other vacant parking spaces in the local area. So maybe I could rent those spaces. I could negotiate pretty good rates, similar to what I'm paying on a kind of long-term lease. And then I could sub-rent those spaces to um, commuters or other people that were visiting the city for shorter amounts of time. And I, and I did that. I think the first step, I found another parking space, rented it for 120 pounds a month. And I thought, well, if I don't sub-rent it, it's okay. I have an extra space. Maybe I have friends come and visit, whatever, I don't care. I signed that lease, rented that space. And within, I think one day, I had someone that wanted to lease it from me for, um, for 12 weeks at a significant markup. And we repeated that across many different parking spaces. And it was really, really good fun. So when you're doing that, is it like, hey, how do I just become like a parking empire, right? Like like the king of this parking empire? Or is it more so you kind of understand, hey, this is great right now. We can make some money, but eventually I want to go and do other things. Yeah, I, I think for me to go, to go a layer deeper, uh, I quickly realized that I, I wasn't going to become the person I was flipping parking spaces in Newcastle, England. And to be completely transparent about it, at that time, the social network movie came out. I, I watched that. I loved it and thought, wow, you can build businesses which are backed by venture capitalists and raise a huge amount of money and build businesses which can produce a huge amount of money. And at that point in time, I realized um, I don't want to be flipping car parking spaces. Uh, I want to work for one of these companies. And that's where I found Revolut, which was my first proper job. And as you are working there, it's obviously uh, with Revolut, this intersection of kind of like finance, technology. Talk a little bit about what you learned helping to scale that business to the size it is today. Um, if I kind of think about fundamentals, um, very similar to what I learned growing up with my father, I think the things that I didn't learn growing up but did learn in, in Revolut are focusing on the problem at hand everything that we are doing should be 
building towards solving a problem, problem for the customer or a problem for an internal service. I think the second thing that I kind of learned at Revolut, which I did not learn in my um, earlier days, is that um, collaborating and working and hiring other smart, like-minded people produces a compounding effect of, of working. Like we didn't have that in, in, in the small town days, right? You were limited with working with a small group of people. Working at a venture-backed business, you can bring smart people together that buy into your vision and then accomplish uh, huge things very quickly. Yeah, that makes a that makes a ton of sense. And one of the things that I think Revolut, you know, it, it almost feels like you've expanded over time, right? So you've got the farm, then you're kind of in Newcastle, then with Revolut, now you've got kind of a bigger, uh, you know, kind of more uh, diverse group of people that you're working with. But with Deal, what uh, when you and I have talked previously that you told me, which I found absolutely fascinating is I think you have colleagues in like 80 different countries. And so you can pretty much go to like almost any city in the world that has some level of density and there's likely to be a deal employee that works there that you could meet up with. Exactly. And it extends past major cities and extends to, I would say, other interesting places. For example, I was in Uruguay in January meeting with one of our partners. Um, we were in Punta del Este, which is a holiday destination, vacation destination in the middle of Uruguay. and we have deal people there. It was great. We went out for dinner. Um, we went over some work stuff. We relaxed. We socialized. It was super cool. But yeah, we have teammates in over 80 different countries. So as you think about your rise and kind of the connectivity you have globally, it really does mirror what we've seen over the last 150 years or so. Like some of the books that I've read in the past, you know, there's this book, uh, The Rise and Fall of American Growth. And it talks about between uh, kind of 1870 and like 1940 and how, you know, a home was basically self-reliant and had to have food. It had to figure out water and like do all this stuff. By the time it gets to the 1940s, everything's connected with roads and telecommunications, and now there's specialization, whatever. But also, if you then you go and you look around those same times, there are these organizations that have been built over you know 100 plus years. Take a Cargill, which is a, a huge uh, you know business here in the United States, and what you see with that business is that they literally start off as like a grain family, like they are providing grains and storage for grain. And then now you fast forward and like they do everything from clothing all the way to, you know, uh, equipment, et cetera. And so it's almost as like as the world has become more connected, it feels like uh, there has been more and more economic opportunity. Capitalism kind of seeps into all these corners. But with deal, you all are solving this like very specific problem with which is like, yeah, it's great to do commerce with all these other countries, but what if you're actually going to be employing people in all these other countries and kind of talk a little bit as to like how you see this connectivity and the rise of internet adoption and all of that really driving the need for the business and product that you guys are building? Well, I think globalization is inevitable and um, people are going to live in different places and that should not constrain who they're working for. I firmly believe that um, there should be no borders when it comes to, to talent and to work. And that's really what Deal is here for. Our mission is to connect millions of workers with the best companies around the world. And we do that. We, 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 <laughs> and we do that through uh, software. We have one platform where companies can hire, onboard, and manage their global workforce. So when you look at that product today, how many of the companies that you all are onboarding are like the two, three person startup that is trying to scale rapidly versus it's the larger corporations? And how do companies kind of evaluate uh, 
should I hire, quote unquote, locally, right? Whether that's locally to a city, a state, or even a country versus, no, I actually should go and, and have kind of employees across the globe. Yeah, I think startups really are finding the best talent. The talent is choosing the, the, the startup. Startup is choosing the talent. It's, I have founders, friends of the founders that have recently started up and they find someone that they want to hire. They don't care where they're based. They don't care if they're in Canada, Mexico, Argentina, or China. Like they really don't care. They just want to hire the person and they want to hire them as quickly as possible. I think when you get to the large kind of corporation stage, then the business is much more strategic about where it wants to hire. And there's typically um, time zone factors in there. There's cost factors in there. There's risk factors in there. Um, there's working style and culture factors in there. And we've seen that for, for, for decades, if not centuries. We've seen large Fortune 500 companies outsource part of their, their workforce to different countries. And the term outsourcing is never really used entirely correctly. It might be that there is a big office in India for an American Fortune 500 company, but it's not actually outsourced. Those people are working for, let's say it's Bank of America. They're working for Bank of America Bank of America's India subsidiary. When you see these companies, is it more productivity? Is it lower cost? Is it just, hey, the best people regardless of cost? Uh, like what, what is really driving um, kind of to the business bottom line? And I always go to like, yes, everyone talks about, hey, I want the best talent, right? I want the best people. But the best people can be measured in many different ways. The best people could be, I want people who can get the job done and cost me the least. The best people can be the most productive, the most talented, uh, they can be the best educated. Like, what are you seeing as these people are hiring? And also, are you seeing certain pockets around the world where it seems like maybe there wasn't a lot of attention being driven there uh, by these large companies that were hiring, and now there's an explosion? You know, in the content world, the Philippines has become like this huge honeypot of uh, video editing talent, et cetera. But are there other types of trends or locations that you guys are paying attention to? First of all, startups are going for the best talent. We see that time and time again. They, they really don't care. They just want the best person and they want them to start as soon as possible. And we get to the big companies. I think there's two buckets here. They also want the best talent, but it's not for all roles. Maybe they want the best talent for their sales or their biz ops team, but they don't necessarily need the best talent for some other um, function. Maybe it's a services function, maybe it's back office. They don't necessarily need the best. In that scenario, we're seeing companies be much more strategic and almost surgical about where, where, where to hire. And that's really where VP of finance CFO comes in. Because frankly, when you're running a startup scale up, not that many people are watching the bottom line. That's the reality of it. Everyone might pretend, yeah, we're watching the bottom line, we're cost quarters, whatever. The, the CFO of VP of finance are really the guys that are looking at it um, precisely. And they're going to make the strategic decisions of, yes, we're going to hire in this location or this time zone. Now, to your final point of those kind of honeypots of expertise, yeah, that's the really cool part. And we're seeing that in, let's say, Argentina, a lot of cool um, UX, UI talent. In Nigeria, we're seeing a lot of good technical operations talent that are working in um, tooling, applications, automations, or tech support. Really, really cool stuff coming from um, Nigeria. Um, and then sales. America remains to be the holy grail of the, the kind of global sales machine. We see so many companies from Europe wanting to hire American salespeople because they want to expand over here. When you see all of this talent, what is their thought process? So like, let's switch to the, the, the employee side of this. Uh, they've got skills. 
they have internet access. They have some entrepreneurial DNA because they want to go work at a, you know, kind of a smaller startup, you know, the challenger rather than go try to get a job at IBM, for example. Um, how many of these people are looking at the startup roles as simply like, hey, that's my training ground. That's my practice for eventually I want to go start a company versus you see people wanting to stay for long periods of time at these companies. And, and one of the things that uh, I think is important here is like, if a lot of these folks are trying to learn and they want to go start companies, are we going to see this explosion of kind of startup activity we've seen in the United States spread globally as well? Yeah. I think great question. First thing to notice, deal has been really successful. In the grand scheme of things, we're still tiny. We're a tiny number of heads on the platform relative to the global population. And what that means is the people that are using the deal platform and finding work through the deal platform from these emerging markets. Let's take Greece, for example. I'm going to Greece soon. Let's say I'm a young guy in Greece. I'm going to use deal to find my next job. By virtue of using deal and knowing what deal is and um, using it to find my job, I am a 1% type of person. I am very entrepreneurial. I want to work harder. I want to grow myself. I have growth mindset. But that's really, really interesting. Um, as deal gets larger and gets more saturated in certain countries, for example, in Argentina, deal is very well known. We do big deal events down there with the community. Um, generally, deal is um, very highly regarded in Argentina. And that's when you kind of get that honeypot type of effect. It's like, oh, well, actually, there's a community now of UX, UI developers, professionals that are using deal to find work. And that community becomes really, really strong. You have a ton of young people who reach out to you. You're relatively young compared to most people who are in your type of role at, you know, large companies. Um, and sometimes they're asking you for like career advice. Maybe sometimes they're pitching you ideas. What are some of the most interesting things that you've seen people working on recently? Yeah, um, it's something I'm certainly passionate about. I started off in my tech journey age 21, initially was a customer support guy. I did customer support for a few weeks, kind of got top of the leaderboard and then went into ops. Um, so, yeah, I'd love to work with young people and, and help them. Um, I think that within Deal, we have a number of people that fit these parameters, and we've watched them grow over the past three or four years, which has been amazing. And some of those guys are running end-to-end -end programs now at the company in different areas. Or one guy, for example, responsible for the full um, pay payout stack, payment stack, payments to contractors, he runs the whole program. It's freaking amazing. He does a great job. Um, and it's just amazing to see that person join the company as a very inexperienced, somewhat nervous individual grow into this competent program manager that owns a part of, owns a moving part of the business today. So that's really cool. Externally, yeah, ton of people reach out and would love to, would love to listen to everyone, but reality, reality is you, you can't. Um, I think there's been some really interesting stuff in crypto. Um, it's starting to seem to die down a little bit now, given we have AI as a new hot topic, but a ton of interesting stuff in crypto um, and a ton of projects, which, which I guess caught my, my, my friend's attention. When you think about kind of uh, information that you've consumed that has made you so successful, one of the books I know that you like is The Messy Middle. Talk a little bit about that book and, and kind of the importance behind uh, the information that you gleaned from it. Yeah. I think in conclusion, the messy middle gives you an element of reassurance. When things get really messy, really hectic, I refer back to that 
point of many different steps in, in a journey, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of steps in this journey. And it could be you're on a certain step and the thing is just crazy. It's so messy. Things are breaking. Relationships aren't working. People are falling out and you're in the messy middle. And what that, what that book is really telling you is the messy middle is what is signifying progress. Without all of that mess and without being in the middle, you're not progressing. You're not growing. That, that book is really good at giving reassurance and helping me communicate that reassurance to the wider team of deal. When you think of that book specifically, are there pieces of uh, kind of information you pulled out? And then can you talk about like a specific situation, a deal where you feel like you implemented it and, and can kind of say like, oh, I got that from that book? Sure. Um, I'm going to roll with um, payments to contractors. So to set the scene, a contractor might be using a deal platform to raise their invoices and get paid. Very typical for startups of a cross-border um, working arrangement. Say I'm in Turkey and I'm working for a US company. I'm going to invoice that company. I'm going to get paid for it. Now, we like to give the contractors, or we do like to give um, the contractors a range of payment methods. We let them choose how they want to get paid. They can get paid to the deal card. They can get paid to their PayPal wallet. They can get paid to their bank account. One of the issues we had is we were giving these contractors too much optionality. We're saying, hey, you can get paid through any different payment method you want. And some of those payment methods were not fit for purpose. What I mean is, for example, bringing pounds or euros as currency into Turkey just isn't, wasn't working. The banks in Turkey were pausing the payments, they were screening the payments, and the contractor wouldn't get their money within the time frame they expected. So when this was going on, we have contractors which love taking euros and pounds to Turkey. We have other contractors which aren't getting their money on time. It's creating a lot of noise. We have people writing in on customer support. It's like, boom, this is hella messy. And we have people at the company that want to keep bringing euros and pounds to Turkey. So contractors love it. You have other stakeholders like, let's shut this down because it's causing too much friction. And you're in the messy middle. And you have to work with those different stakeholders and find the optimal solution. And we found it. We found the solution, which continued to give the contractors the options that they want to get paid, but reduced a lot of that really messy overhead and some of those complex cases which produce delays. So along these lines, people who have had an operating background, they have done an incredible amount of good things, but also made plenty of mistakes. And usually when they're making decisions, they actually don't know if it's a good decision or a bad decision. They hope it's a good one, but you kind of don't know till you have the benefit of hindsight. Is there anything that in your career you're like, hey, I made a decision. It was the wrong decision, but here's what I learned from it. Or here's how I uh, identified I won't repeat X or Y. And, and I think about this a lot in terms of when bad things are happening, I always try to stop and say like, what's the lesson here? And so, you know, I'll give you an example uh, first, which is uh, we were hiring an employee. And, uh, for one of our businesses, and they verbally committed to us on a Friday. And so we went and did a bunch of work uh, Friday night and Saturday, you know, get all the documentation and, and kind of work through it. By Sunday night, they hadn't signed it yet, but we had already started to talk internally and, and let people know, okay, hey, this person is going to be joining us. Here's the, the changes we're going to make, whatever. And by Monday morning, they said, you know what? Look, my heart's just not in it. 
And so we had to basically put together the standard operating procedures around like, okay, at what point do we actually share with the broader team that someone's joining or not joining? Is it if they signed or not signed? Like there was all these lessons that we learned, but it came out of a situation where like, look, we're like, look, we wish it had gone a different way. And so is there something like that that you've been able to identify where you're like, yeah, th this is kind of how I went through a process and, and was able to take out some insights and, and make sure that I didn't repeat those mistakes in the, in the future? Yeah. First of all, we have the exact same case with Deal. We had a leader join, really, really excited, really great guy, but last minute, heart wasn't in it, wanted to do something different, and we had to tell everyone it really sucked. So we also have to upgrade and develop out those SOPs. Um, It's a tough question to spring to on a podcast, if I'm honest. Um, what do you think your biggest uh, career mistake has been? How about that? Like, if you could go back and change one thing, you're like, if I could do that again, I would have done something different. Well, biggest career mistake is all around hiring. It's about bringing people into your circle to work on the same project and certain mission. So if, if it was the biggest mistake, I would literally pinpoint certain people that we, we brought in to our circle to work on the project, which didn't work out. If we, if we analyzed, scrutinized, interviewed better, made better decisions, we would have done more. And like, there's multiple people, obviously I'm going to say the name, there's multiple people I can, I can speak to and think of immediately that they, if we hadn't spent four weeks, five weeks, six weeks interviewing, getting to know them, and then another similar period of time onboarding and then working with them for four months and then making the decision to offboard them, that's so much time wasted. That is the number one thing. Yeah. And, and it always goes back to, I think it's full of a node is like, you know, the team you build is the company you build. And so you're trying to get it right. But the process you just described there are four to six weeks of interviewing, four to six weeks of onboarding, and then four months later. I mean, you're basically talking about six to seven months from start to finish. Uh, and to most people, that's going to sound like an insanely short period of time, right? But actually in the startup world, that is like, two lifetimes in terms of not having the right person. Cause then once you know that you've got to offboard that first person, you gotta go find the actual person who's going to fill the role. And so it ends up extending that time frame uh, pretty significantly. I think in interviewing, it's really important to trust no one and it's don't trust yourself. Don't trust the candidate. Don't trust the references. In this case, got a reference saying he was the smartest guy the referee had ever met. Um, he was very, very confident and very, very sure it was the right, right role for him. And that made me feel confident um, that he was the right person. I should have brought in more third-party stakeholders, cross-reference, cross-analyze. Um, and then when you have all of that data there, you can actually say, well, this person probably isn't right for us. Yeah. And when you're going through those interviews, how do you kind of get people to uh, tell you the truth? Right. And I, I always say in terms of uh, I think in interviews, most candidates are trying to put their best foot forward, obviously, like they, they want to impress the interviewer. They want to uh, get the job like there's all these reasons and in, in personal incentives that, that take over. Um, but how do you try to get at, you know, who is this person going to be not on day one, but on day 747? And like that's who we're actually trying to hire is somebody who's great on day 747, not the person who comes in on the first day. You know, they're kind of dressed up extra special. They show up 20 minutes earlier than they normally would. And like they're trying to put their best foot forward on day one because they're enthusiastic. But how do you get at that in an interview? I think break down the professional paywall first and foremost. Break that down as quick and efficiently as possible and start to have a human conversation with the person. And it doesn't start and stop with the interview. 
all of the exec hires that I make and that I'm currently recruiting for, it's a whole process. We are iMessage, WhatsApp, we'll do off-the-cuff calls. We will have the professional touch points where we have an hour-long interview where we speak to each other over camera in a very formal and professional way. But that can't be it, especially for an exec hire. You really need to understand the person. You need to understand their level of interest. You need to understand their level of commitment. Working at a startup is an incredible level of commitment. You need to work so hard and stay focused on the goal. It's not for everyone. And there's no way that you can accurately read that in an interview type scenario. When you think about uh, the startups are not for everyone, what is the day-to-day schedule of somebody at Deal? Are you guys still working you know, 12, 14-hour type days? Has it scaled back as you've gotten larger? Talk a little bit about um, kind of that experience on a day-to-day basis. Because I think when people hear it's not for everyone, they're like, oh, it's just a different uh, you know, mission or it's a different industry. I don't think they sometimes understand how different it is working at a startup versus even working at Facebook or Google, let alone you know, kind of a, a more bureaucratic and bloated uh, you know, non-tech type company. Yeah, I think in too long, didn't didn't read kind of form out, yeah, we still work really, really hard. There's no doubt about it. <laughs> um, I have friends that work in private equity. They work in big law firms. They work in investment banks. They are working really hard, really long, but there's so much dead and inefficient time, which would kill me as a human being. One of the reasons that I can be comfortable with working so hard and committing so much is the work is highly efficient. It's async. I can call people when I, when I need to call them in a human way. I can call them when I'm walking my dog, if I had a dog, um, but I can call them when I'm going to get some fresh air, right? That type of thing is really, really meaningful. In some, in some environments, the formalized touch points of meetings have become so important and so significant that it becomes the only touch point to connect with people, to properly connect with people. That's a disaster. That is so expensive for the company that constrains time and productivity so much. You need to be working fully async. You need to be trusting your entire team. It doesn't matter if they're taking a call while they're outside getting some fresh air. It doesn't matter if they're taking a call while they're eating their lunch because they're on the go and they have a tight schedule. It doesn't matter if they're taking a quick call before they jump on a plane. It's all about trust and working working asynchronously. And in that environment, how much is it systems and like documentation and stuff like that, right? If you, if it is this async type environment, like communication is still important, but async communication is obviously different than uh, kind of synchronous uh, communication. Like what are some of the systems that you guys have tried to install or things that you've seen work really, really, really well, whether it's for you personally or for the company? I loop back to the messy middle for a moment. I think you can have a lot of informal, fluid conversation and note-taking in a pretty unstructured way, as long as that is underpinned by structure, then you're fine. And that's how we generally work a deal. We can work on these hot topics for two or three days at a time. It's very, very fluid. It's pretty messy, frankly. There's different phone calls going on. There's different um, Google Meets, forums, different documents. But the point of it is, at the end of the project, everything is formalized and put into an SOP or a standard um, organizational structure. And so as you see that occurring, one of the pieces that I always kind of go back to is um, it's kind of like uh, software engineers. There's a lot of software engineers that can write amazing code and do it very quickly. And then there's a lot of software engineers who can write amazing code and do it with the proper documentation and notes and kind of like understand they're working in a bigger organization. And so it's like clean 
code that can be used later by other people and and they're not gonna have to call me to figure out what was I doing or why did I make certain decisions? Like how much of the company today is like just write code and you know ship it, right? Or whatever the equivalent is for each uh, job role versus it's like, no, we need to go quickly. We need to have high quality work, but we also need to be uh, focused on those operating processes, you know, documentation and that type of stuff. Yeah, early stage startup is always a mess. Engineers pushing code very quickly no proper QA, no proper documentation. It's just get it out, deploy to production. If it goes down, we'll fix it and no one will notice. And you're running a business the size of deal on a platform the size of deal, you cannot do that. It's incredibly dangerous. And everyone is watching. Every, there were tens of hundreds of people using the platform every minute. I think that once a startup gets to a, around um, 50 to 100 people, not saying you need to use headcount as the metric, but there's some metric that you could use around that size, the engineering processes become robust. Those checks and balances are in place. Documentation is happening. Everything is very clean and organized. We're two and a half thousand people now. So we have startups within startups, all at that kind of stage. So you have those global SOPs, guardrails, checks and balances. But at the end, you have many different product teams which are run like startups with kind of a mini CEO, which is responsible for the error of the product and responsible for pushing it forward. I think uh, when I ask my friends who have large teams, you know, hundreds if not thousands of employees, one of the things that uh, they still find a lot of enjoyment in is sometimes they will see an update get pushed or uh, they'll see some sort of uh, product feature get shipped and they're pleasantly surprised because they're like, I would have never thought of that, but like this team is doing a great job. Or, uh, hey, we hired really high quality people who thought differently than myself or, or my co-founders or, or whatever. And what you're describing here with almost like these small startups within uh, the company, I'm assuming that you guys get a lot of that because if you sit all day and you just think about this one you know, part of the product, you probably end up thinking more deeply and critically about it than let's say you know, somebody who spends five seconds uh, once a week and, and tries to figure out what we should do there. Man, that is the best feeling. Seeing one of those teams produce something which you have no oversight over. You don't really know what's going on. Like, you know the objective, you know what they're working towards, but you don't know how they're going to meet it. And then they produce this product and you're like, wow, that, that's fantastic. I wouldn't have built it this way. I couldn't have built it this way. That's killer. Like That is the best feeling. Yeah, I think, uh, I think that is shared across every company that I talk with. Um, Enzo Ferrari is uh, uh, a world famous entrepreneur, uh, although some people may not think of him that way. Um, I know that you've thought a lot about, you know, his obsession with just like building a beautiful car. Talk a little bit about like his rise and, and building a Ferrari and, and trying to make it perfect. And maybe the corollaries of like, how do you think about the craft and like what you all are trying to do and the obsession that you have in, in solving your problem? Yeah, it was a friend that was speaking about this to me. And he basically said, if you want to build a car from a spreadsheet, that's what Ford have done. And if you want to build a car to become a piece of art, that's what Enzo Ferrari did. I think that's, that's like a very fascinating notion that you can go one of two ways and maybe there's some kind of hybrid in between. Um, and I think that you don't want to be full, full spreadsheet, right? You want to make sure there's some... Um, artistic license 
uh, given to the team. So they have agency to make really cool creative decisions and build things, which are more than just um, uh, a, spread- a spreadsheet. Yeah. yeah. It, it also feels like, I guess, you know, Ford um, is uninspiring. Like nobody, I don't think anyone gets in like a Ford Explorer and they're like, wow. <laughs> right. They get in and they're like, this is a great vehicle for what I need to accomplish. It gets the job done. It's durable. It's reliable. It's, you know, all of these types of things. Um, but the Ferrari is a whole different, uh, you know, kind of experience. I think uh, what's interesting to me is like, Maybe Tesla, and again, there's some people who love Tesla, some people who hate Tesla, whatever, but like maybe they're one of the companies that's trying to like be the middle. How do you build something that's beautiful and inspiring and and kind of captures the imagination of, you know, a bunch of people, but at the same time, can they drive the price down, you know, to sub 50K versus having to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on a sports car? First of all, I'm a big admirer of, of Elon Musk. I think he's fantastic. He's an amazing entrepreneur. And I think Tesla is an amazing product. I don't have one myself, um, but I would like one. <laughs> Teslas are great. Uh, very, very cool. Um, very super cool technology. Yeah. Uh, and, and I guess part of uh, this idea of like building off a spreadsheet versus building off of, you know, kind of an artistic desire. Uh, it also depends on the company. Right. Like, like if you almost think about uh, deal to some degree, like you all probably sit down and look at a map and you're like, OK, like what are all the countries that we need to be able to be operational in? And then the idea of like carrying the physical printer into the country, like that's not a spreadsheet. Right. That's like more the art. And somebody probably was like, hey, I'm tired of you know running around trying to find a Kinko's or whatever the local equivalent is. Instead, we can just plug our own in and go ahead and just print documents there. How big is it? Does it fit in my bag? Is it heavy? You know, like you just kind of figure it out and then you have this great story to tell, but actually it was highly efficient and effective for fitting back into kind of that spreadsheet type uh, approach of like, what are the countries we need to be operational in? I think it's also closely correlated with culture and attitude. I have people at the company that work with me and they're amazing. But culturally, they're just not going to take a printer from country to country with them. They would say, no, they're just not going to do it. For me, I'm totally fine. Um, so that culture and background can also drive approach. And I think that's why you hire, say, your design creative team from a certain culture, from a certain background, with a certain mindset, so they can make those decisions. And then you hire your ops guys with a slightly different mindset, so they can really focus on accurate operational delivery. How important is it to have people from both of the cultures? Like the people who would say, yes, I'll carry the printer and the people who say, no, I won't do it. Like is the diversity of culture important or actually do you wish that you had more people who would carry the printer uh, rather than less? I think diversity is so, so, so important. And we're, we're so diverse. This weekend, we've had people celebrating Easter, Passover, Ramadan, and probably some other stuff I don't even know about that. That diversity is so important and so core to what we are a deal and has had a huge impact on what we've built. Yeah. I always find it interesting as well, uh, given that the business is international. You know, I, when I worked at Facebook in uh, 2014, 2015, like it's easy to get caught in, oh, I'm a United States citizen sitting in uh, Menlo Park and we're building products. And like, let me check out uh, what this feature looks like on my iPhone on, you know, uh, whatever it was 3G, you know, uh, internet at the time. And then they literally built this like testing uh, kind of facility. And what they did is it allowed you to use uh, all 
kinds of other different mobile devices and they were able to throttle the internet connection. And so you could literally see like, what does this product or feature look like on a you know T9 texting non-smartphone device if I was in a rural part of X country? And you're like, yo, that shit looked real fast and cool on the iPhone. <laughs> this is a nightmare on this other device. How do we solve and, and kind of make it work on both, right? Yeah, yeah, I have a crazy story related to this topic. So former boss, his name is Vlad, CTO at Revolut. He wasn't my direct boss, but he was one of the bosses of the company. He's worth a, a ton of money. He built Revolut. He's still to this day, at least last time I saw him, still to this last time I saw him, uses a really old shitty Android phone. Like the like the, the worst phone I have ever seen. Like to turn the screen on or for it to wake up, I'm pretty sure it takes two or three seconds. And he does that because he wants Revolut to run perfectly on the worst tech possible. Oh, that was amazing. The the um uh yeah, the word empathy, I think, has like become kind of this like weird thing that everyone wants to run around and yell and scream about. But like that's ultimately what it is, right? It's like if I put myself in the seat of the people who are gonna have the hardest problem in accessing our technology and I'm able to solve it for them, then we're gonna be excellent for the people who have, you know, great uh internet, uh great devices, all, all this stuff. Um, but but also it's not just the technology, right? Like I think one of the other pieces that's really interesting um, is when you're dealing with uh, employees being paid. I know Uber, for example, had a huge uh, kind of challenge. And when they went into India and a couple of other countries, like there is not a credit card culture. And so if it's heavy cash, like how do you deal with that? And then not only how do you actually like quote unquote process the payment, but then like how do you prevent the driver from stealing the money, <laughs> right? And like you kind of like deal with all like the fraud mitigation and things like that. But also, if, if you think about um, the, the idea of, like, when do people get paid, right? In the United States, I think most people get paid twice a month. You know, there's kind of like the, this, like, cultural uh, uh, agreement. But I've got to assume, maybe I'm wrong, you can correct me, but, like, I've got to assume that around the world, the way people get paid in terms of, you know, uh, bank deposits or whatever, how often they get paid, like, all that stuff changes on a country-to-country -country basis. And so you all have to understand that in order to actually serve the customer, correct? Uh, totally. Typically, the schedule which people are paid changes, whether it's tw twice monthly, once monthly, sometimes it's post and in arrears five days after the end of the month. But salary payments aren't the biggest variable. It's onboarding, onboarding an employee. You think about onboarding here in the US, it's pretty easy. You get all of the kind of employees' key information, social, date of birth. You run a quick immigration check with the US government service. They sign their employee agreement and they start. You go to certain countries, medical tests. The employee has to go to a doctor and have a medical assessment that needs to be passed and certified before they can start work. Military service certification. They have to prove that they've completed military service. We have to vet that, we have to validate that. And I think the most uh, interesting one is immigration. We help employees from different nationalities work in different countries. It is, uh, it is fascinating to me where in the United States, if you said to someone, hey, you got to go to the doctor before you can come work here, that would be like taboo and, and may even be like the, the headline of a you know, hit piece article saying like, can you imagine this company is doing this in another country? It's mandatory. And just like when you now have this connectivity uh, where individuals can work at companies not in their country, uh, it really changes not only uh, the employee expectations, 
but reverse, right? And what you guys help with is like, now the companies have to go learn around the globe. What are all these requirements that we have to fulfill in these countries? And so it, it's almost like a complexity on both sides. And uh, I think a US company probably is like, hey, this is making your life harder. But actually for an employee who's getting a job at a US-based company, maybe it actually is making their job easier, right? Like, like they actually see it as, oh, I don't have to do all these steps that maybe I would have to do if I worked at a local company. And so it, it's very fascinating how the same exact uh, kind of uh, trend can be seen as a pro or a con, depending on which side of, uh, of the marketplace you are. Yeah, the biggest delta for, for me is the company that's hiring the person. They're head of HR, VP of people or whatever. They typically know HR in the home country and maybe one or two other countries really, really well. It's really rare to find a people leader that has experience over many different countries. And that, produces a delta in expectations because maybe they know how to onboard, offboard, do PTO rollover in the US, UK, Germany, but they have no idea how it really works in Malaysia. They, they have the fundamentals, assuming that the systems are fundamentally the same, but really they don't know. That's where the biggest delta comes from. Got it. Okay. That makes, uh, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, talk to me about what advice would you give yourself 10 years ago? Like you now have been working in tech for about 10 years. What, what, what are the things that you wish you knew when you started? I think when something is when something is going badly, the time to react to that bad thing should be as short as possible. And at this stage in my life, when something is going wrong, I'm very quick to react. Whether it's in personal life, professional life, whatever. We can react very quickly and we can produce change and we'll basically try another way of solving that problem and doing that thing. Maybe it'll be better, maybe it'll be worse. Hopefully it'll be better. Maybe it'll be worse and then we try again. I look at my kind of younger self, 24 year old self, that kind of time to make the decision to change was much longer. So the sooner you can shorten that thinking time to make a decision, the better. So it's almost like uh, from, hey, I should do this to like action or execution, the shorter that time period you think just the, the faster that you're able to get things done and, and kind of drive uh, output and productivity. It kind of, but it can be a little bit deeper than that. It could be relationship-based. Maybe you've got a, a, a higher, someone on the team is looking after a certain program or a certain area of the business and you're like, oh, well, you know, I think Pomp is great, but um, I'm, just, I'm just not sure if he's, if he's going to grow. I'm going to be here in six months and doing, doing the right thing. There's a few issues with, with this program. And you speak to him and then you try and say, like, well, I think you need to do this, this, this better. You need to change your working style there. And then a couple of moments go and I haven't probably paid enough attention to make sure that things have improved. And then, you know, we get to a point in time where you're super dissatisfied with the job because you're not succeeding and not having a fun time. I'm super dissatisfied as the manager. But if, if we'd actually made that decision to take action sooner and pay close attention to what's going on, we probably wouldn't be where we are today. So mm -hmm. I think that's a really good example. Yeah. And I think that that is a, uh, a situation that people experience across the world, right? It doesn't matter if you're in a, a tech startup, if you're in a, kind of a Fortune 500, you know, more bureaucratic company, or literally you uh, could potentially just be working. Um, I always go to the extreme example, like you could be working on uh, oil pipelines in Texas. And there's someone there who's the manager who's like, hey, I wish that that person would do X. And that person's like, man, I really don't enjoy the job right now. And so I think that's a great lesson that applies across uh, across different businesses. Um, my last question for you is, if you weren't working at Deal, what would you be doing? Ooh, 
It's a really tough question. To be honest, I don't think about this too much because I'm really happy working a deal. So I don't think I have a good answer for it. I would like to think I'd be working on something that's A, really scalable, B, it's international, and C, it has some type of good social impact. That's a great answer because although you don't know what it is, you kind of have a framework to evaluate what it would be, which I think uh, kind of speaks to the fact that uh, you've got a pretty good sense of what you enjoy doing and, and kind of what are the things that, uh, that you want to be working on. So uh, I think that's as good of an answer as anyone can give me. Uh, where, where can we send people to find you on the internet or find out more about Deal? Uh, deal.com. I'm on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm uh, posting pretty frequently. So that's uh, a good place. What, what is your Twitter handle? Do you know? Uh, Dan Westgolf. All right. We'll send some people over to Twitter and uh, hopefully we can get more uh, more content out of you. All the operational uh, insights and uh, uh, secrets that you have, we need to spread because there's not very many people who have uh, employees that, you know, thousands of employees across the world, 80 different countries, hundreds of millions of dollars in, uh, in, in revenue. You guys are doing an absolute killer job of scaling this thing and uh, operations is at the heart of it. So I appreciate your time today. I learned a ton. I think a lot of the audience will have learned a lot as well. And uh, we will definitely do this again in the future. Thanks. Appreciate it.